If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Acts, and we'll start in chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I will just kind of tickle your ears to say this. From time to time, it serves us good. It serves us well to remember why we do what we do as a church, what it is that we are supposed to do, and how we succeed at it. And so I find in Acts 1 and 2, I find that those beginning points to help us as the modern day church that we can be a church like it like there were in the first century churches and communities made a difference in that community and so we're going to begin here and I, I don't know if we'll uh, how long we'll run on Wednesday night or whatever with it but first of all next Wednesday night next Wednesday night it'll be all VBS okay next Wednesday night it'll be all VBS okay and when we come back in two weeks, um, we'll pick up and go forward just to refresh us, to remind us. Now, you, you remember that the first part of Acts chapter 1 is where uh, Jesus was, he gave the, uh, a, his final rendition of the Great Commission, and he was ascended back to heaven. And the disciples, the people that were there, watched him go up into heaven, and they met with the angels. Now, pick up in verse 12. This is what Luke writes. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive Grove, what we normally call the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, if you will, look to chapter 2, verse 1. Now, I'll, pa- I'll pause before I start reading to say that the 120 in the upper room generally prayed, tradition tells us, about 10 days. And then verse 1, chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly... A sound like that of a violent rushing wind. Can anybody tell me the violent rushing wind we've heard around here lately? Tornado. Violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire were divided, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking... Galileans how is it we hear each of us in our own language now if you will scoot on down after after that um, they came out to see the guys and hear them speaking their own language Peter stood up and he preached a sermon and I'm not going to give you that sermon but he taught but he preached through the prophets he preached through the history and then down in verse 36 he gives the invitation and he says therefore Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
And when they heard this, they were pierced or cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be corrupt, from, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to just say one thing before I pray. Am I the only one in this house that would have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to hear the noise of the Holy Spirit coming? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen the, the fiery tongues? Wouldn't you, have, wouldn't you have loved to experience and felt the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen 3,000 people get saved because 120 people were sharing faith? They changed that community. They made a difference. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this story will inspire us. I pray that you will use it with your Holy Spirit to speak to the very depths of our being, that we can be the people with hot hearts for you and hot hearts to see lost people come to know you. In your name, amen. The story is told of a hurricane striking. It struck, and, and a lot of people, and a number of people were gathered together in a room, and there was a preacher there. One of these big oratorial preachers. Y'all know what I'm talking about? His voice changes when he preaches. And he's up there praying in or, with all the oratorial effects against all the, th the thunder and lightning, and he says, Lord God, send the spirit of your children of Israel. Send the spirit of the children of Moses. Send the spirit of the children of the promised land. And when he took a breath, an old man in the back, kind of not near as oratorical, but just more direct. And he said, Lord, don't send nobody. Come yourself. This ain't no time for children. You know what the truth is? Is that English and oratorio thrown aside, the truth is his call was correct. I suggest to you we live in a day when there is a need for God to show up himself. You know it's true we live in a day when there are more lost people than there have ever been, but we also live in a day when there's more saved people than there have ever been. You add to this, we live in a day when there's more resources for the church than they've ever been, and there are less baptisms than there have ever been. One church consultant said, there is no discernible pulse or no vital signs in the church of America. Church in Washington, D.C. closed its doors and put over the, side, put over the, the door of their church out of business, forgot what our business was. Could it be that in the Church of America, and we are one of them, could it be in the Church of America that we've become so comfortable that we have become an exclusive club for members, believers only, and those like us? 
You know, this new generation, they can kind of make us uncomfortable because they're too animated. They're not church broken. That means they don't know how to act in church. They don't know how to, to respect what we've always thought was uh, respect. They'll sit on my pew. They'll crowd my Sunday school classes. Could it be that we've become so comfortable and so exclusive that outsiders come in and they're so uncomfortable because they don't know the rules? Could it be that, that we've become so cultural, not just comfortable, could it be that we've become so cultural in nature that if an honest seeker walked through the back door, he has trouble connecting with the people and with the Lord that we represent? Do we, do we speak in buzzwords and have a list of expectations of lost people? And, and, and is our culture gotten to the point that, that when they come in, that they're already spiritually lost, but now they come into a church and they're culturally lost. They don't know what goes on inside the beltway. Have we, have we become so, so cultural that we've lost our connection to lost people? But not only have we come, become comfortable and cultural, have we become complacent? Just to utter those words for me begs a couple of questions. Now, please don't answer out loud. Do we, do you, actually believe that there are still lost people? That is, do you believe that, if, that there are still people who are going to die and go to hell? Do you believe that if we don't reach some of those people, that they will never see heaven? They'll spend an eternity in a place called hell. Do we preachers advance this by not preaching on the horrors of hell? I mean, think about it. When we don't hear about something regularly, we kind of forget and we become complacent. Could it be that we and the church are so wrapped up in our own little world that we have forgotten that we're in his world, that there are his creation and there are people that he's concerned about. Like that church in Washington, D.C., have we forgotten? Is, pos- is it possible that we have forgotten our business? When I look at these 120 that was in the upper room that we read about, It seems to me that, that the Lord Christ was so ever-present and relevant to them that they never forgot. And because of that, they changed a community and they rocked a world. Twelve disciples. Jesus preached to thousands, 5,000, 10,000, 15 when you count women and children sometimes. He fed them. And at the end of the day, there was only 120 who gathered in the upper room. And because they wanted to be people who changed the world, I think they show us how to do it. I just suggest to you four things that we need, that they had that we need if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to change the world, if we're going to be the church, the people God wants us to be. And I'll I'll go on record. At the very outside, I have 15... 18 years left in active pastorate ministry if God gives me good health. 
I have no interest in spending that time with business as usual. There are people who are lost and dying, to hell, and dying and going to hell, and one day I'm going to close my eyes to this life, and I'm immediately going to open my eyes and have to answer for those folks that we've not reached. I'd rather hear, hear well done. How about you? Let me just offer four things that I think that we need from this. The first of all is we need the prayers of the saints. Oh, Brother Jerry, that's pretty simple. Well, let's, let's kind of look at what they did. Back in chapter 1, they left. They left uh, from where they had seen Jesus, and they returned from the Mount of Olives, and they went to the upper room, and they began to pray. They had one purpose. They were coming to pray. If there is a second purpose, they were praying and waiting. But it seems to me that if when we really pray, waiting accompanies praying. Because if we're praying just to talk to God, that's not really praying. That's telling Him how things are. When we're really praying, we are praying and listening for God. The, de- the, the deacons, the disciples had great spiritual instincts. Every time something went bad, through the good times, through the bad times, when they were intimidated, when they were hurt, when they were threatened, you know what they did? They didn't go and and spread stuff around the community about how bad it... They prayed. They went to the upper room and they prayed. And if you scoot over to Acts chapter 4, you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that they shook, a room shook at their prayers. I suggest to you that when they got in the upper room, that it was not a rote or a standard prayer. It probably was just not the right words. They probably didn't use all the right nuances. I mean, when we were kids, some of you are going to beat me up about this, but when we were kids, we used to make fun of the adults, but then when we prayed, we wanted to pray like adults, so we knew all the words. We would pray for the blessings of life. Never knew what that was, but we would pray for the blessings of life. We would pray for the sick and afflicted. We never knew what afflicted was, but we'd pray for the sick and afflicted. We'd pray for the missionaries on the home and foreign fields. And we knew about those. But the ones that always got me were we prayed for those for whom it is our duty to pray for. Okay, that's not funny to you guys because we've all done it, haven't we? Here's what I want to tell you. Real prayer before God is pouring out your heart to God. In fact, Spurgeon said this, the best style of praying is that which can only be called a cry. Jim Symbol is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle up in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, you're talking about a war zone, Brooklyn, New York. You're talking about people who walk in off the street, there's prostitutes, there's drug addicts. They are in the middle of evil. Now, before we think that's really bad, if you were to look around with a discerning eye, you find that we are in the middle of evil. I'm going to never cease to be amazed when I turn on the TV. Gunfire in Hueytown. Someone shot in Hueytown. I mean to single Van and Sandy out, but I know they listen to a scanner. And I've heard Van say more than one time, you know what, you need to pray for our policemen because we keep them hopping around here. But Jim Symbol at that Brooklyn Tabernacle, he tells the story about how his daughter had been gone for several years. 
And he never, on their Tuesday night, they're not Baptists, they have prayer meeting on Tuesday night and not Wednesday night. And on Tuesday night at their prayer meeting, they don't have the gym to get up and speak and preach. You know what they do when they come in on Tuesday night? They pray. And they don't pray all organized. They'll pray with a group over here, maybe a group of eight or ten. All of them praying together, another group of eight or ten over here praying. Somebody says, I have a need. They'll come pray for them. And they have prayed and seen people healed. One of the stories in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, has to do with his daughter who was gone for a long time. They didn't know where she was. He said, I remember going to church on Sunday morning, crying as I drove into church. God, how can I minister to these people when my heart is so crushed? One Tuesday night, a lady came and said, uh, uh, they were praying. And she said, Pastor Jim said, it's time for us to pray for your daughter. Tuesday night. She'd been gone for multiple years, three or four years, something like that. They didn't have a clue where she was. And, and Jim simply said, I've not burdened y'all with this, but you know that, that Carol, Carol's their choir director, and Carol and I have been torn up about her daughter. And said, and he called her by name, said, she thinks it's time to pray, so if you would pray. And they gathered around the couple, and they prayed for them. Tuesday, Tuesday night. Thursday morning, Jim said, I'm all lathered up, shaving. And said, Carol came up with eyeballs looking like a deer in headlights. And she said, you need to come downstairs now. This is Thursday morning, less than 48 hours later. He walked down and he said, my daughter was sitting cross-legged in the kitchen floor. And said, she looked up at me and this is what she said. She said, Daddy, y'all's Tuesday night meeting. I said, who prayed for me? He said, what do you mean? She said, no, who prayed for me? And so he told her the story. She said, well, you know what? I had a keen vision that I was hanging over hell and that God was about to let me go if I didn't do right. Brooklyn Tabernacle has such a reputation for having people healed, for having people restored, having people cleaned up, that when Dr. David Jeremiah, one of my favorite preachers in this country, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he called them and he requested them to pray for him. In fact, don't go to the bank with this, but my recollection is he got on a plane and flew to one of their prayer meetings. You see, we need the prayers of the saints if we're going, if we are going to make a difference in our world, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our church. We need the prayers of the saints. Spurgeon again said the best, the only, the best prayer that is prayed is that which is a cry. That is what they do at Brook and Tower. That's what they did probably in this upper room. And here's what I'll ask you. How long has it been? How long has it been since you cried out to God? How long has it been since you cried out to God? Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. At the risk of sounding like a know-it-all or arrogant, I can tell you the last time you cried out. It was the last time you felt helpless. It was the last time you were up against something and you thought for sure there was no way out. You felt like if God didn't come through, you were gone. 
Because you see, in our contentment, we won't cry out to God because it's undignified. And I suggest to you that sometimes our prayers get so dignified and homogenized and pasteurized that the whole work of God is petrified. Could it be that the reason pulpits are so powerless and pews are so listless is that the prayer chairs and the prayer closets are so tearless? Could be the reason that so few people get saved is that so few are concerned enough to weep about their salvation. I submit to you that a church body is only as strong as the prayer life of her membership. We say this country needs a spiritual awakening. This church needs a spiritual awakening. Our Christians need a spiritual awakening. If it's going to happen, he said, if my people call by my name, will humble themselves and pray. If we are going to have, and if we're going to make a difference, have renewal, a revival, if the spiritual temperature is going to go up, it's going to be because we have what they had, the prayers of the saints. Not rote prayers, not standard prayers, but the heart cry prayer. Because we know that we can't change it by ourselves. I'm convinced, personally, that revival will not come to the believers in America as long as we feel like we can do it all our own. When the prayers of the saints reach the ears of God with the cry for help. I believe that he'll send the second thing we need, which is the presence of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit. If you move to chapter 2 now, and you see that small crowd, those 120, <clears throat> were in the upper room. They had been praying for 10 days. And then all of a sudden, it was heard. All of a sudden, the silence was broken. All of a sudden, they didn't know what was coming. What did it sound like? It sounded like a tornado. It sounded like a hurricane. It says the sound like that of a mighty rushing wind. For those who think God does his best work in the silence, you need to hear this. This was a sound like a tornado, and I will say this to you, that generally, not every time, we can take us through a few times in the Bible where it was silence, generally when God sends a great movement, it generally is pretty noisy. I'm reminded of, of uh, Moses in Exodus 14. He stretched out that rod to a... Uh, uh, Part the waters. Now, folks, in God's sovereignty, could he have just said, okay, no big deal. But you know what he chose to do? The wind howled all night long and pushed back the waters. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of uh, um, in Ezekiel about those dry bones. Did those bones have to rattle? Did the winds have to blow to put them back together? Not on your life. But they did. You see, the truth is, the truth is, too often, 
too many churches and too many believers don't really care to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because when, when the Lord comes in in a manifest way, something may have to change. In fact, I would suggest this to you, is that something will change. We receive the presence of the Holy Spirit when we pray those prayers, and we pray. Do you remember what the old-time preachers used to call it? Pray through. How do you know when you pray through? I'll tell you. It's my personal belief that when we pray through, that the holy wind of God blows in. And when the holy wind of God blows in, things change. Could it be that today we're suffering from a deficiency in the sufficiency of God? We've gotten so accustomed to doing it on our own that we really don't need the presence of God. How many preachers have said, I've been one of them, how many preachers have said, preached, taught that the Holy Spirit could die and churches could just go on with business as usual. Because we got it figured out. And here's what I'm telling you. While churches swap sheep, this one's going to Crossroads, that one's going to Valley Creek, this one's coming to Hueytown, that one's going to uh, uh, Industrial City. While we swapping sheep, we're losing the battle against Satan, the enemy, death, and hell. And we're supposed to be already declared winners. But we can't do it. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But greater is he who is in the world than you are alone. If we're going to make a difference, we need the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when we have the prayers of the saints and we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit, this is, this is a good part. The third thing that comes is the power of the sovereign God. The power of the sovereign God. Now, I like this. This is my favorite part in Acts 2, and it makes Baptists really mad, really upset, really nervous. I like the language part. I like the tongues part. I know you're not supposed to say that in Baptist churches. I love the tongues part. But understand something. Here's why I love the tongues part. It is something that can only be explained by God. It was not gibberish. It was not unknown. There was nothing unknown about what they did. It was simply that God gave them the gift that they needed that was required to confirm believers and to convict and convert non-believers. Here's the best part of this. When we pray through, when we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the sovereign God, Here's what happens. We become endued. That's a Baptist word. We become given His power. And when we get given His power, new things, different things start to happen. Changes begin to take place. We spend too much time trying to explain away the power of God rather than just explain the power of God. I think that's why the the church is losing her influence today. It's because we spend so much time trying to explain things away. 
When we receive the power of God, now what happens is that supernatural becomes the natural. The abnormal becomes the normal. And it is only because the environment has changed. Let me give you one little simple, quick illustration. I know I'm going way too long. Did you realize that turning water to ice is an impossibility? I mean, you go, well, Brother Jerry, you're crazy. No. Hear me out. You go back 200, 300 years, and you told one of those, um, you go back a couple of hundred years, you tell one of those early patriots that you can take water and you can put it in a box and it's going to turn to ice. What would they do to you? They'd laugh at you, and then if it did turn to ice, they would probably burn you for being a witch. It would be magic to them. But today, with the advent of electricity, with the advent of a refrigeration and freezer system, we take ice, we take water, and we put it in the freezer. And in fact, if it doesn't turn to ice, we get upset and call the repairman. And do you know what it's all about? It's about the environment you put it in. All of a sudden, this impossibility of water to ice becomes a normal thing because you've changed the environment. Do you know what? That's what can go on in a church and a community when God shows up. Just for the sake of time, this generation, that is from the oldest one here to the youngest one here, this generation has never seen an end of what God can do. We need His power. We need His presence. We need to see Him work, and it will only happen when it begins with the prayers of the saints. I'm going to offer you one more thing very quickly. It begins with the prayers of the saints, and then the showing up of the presence of the Spirit and the power of the Sovereign. And number four, we need the passion of the Savior if we're going to make a difference. Jesus' words in the Gospels was, were, see the fields. They're ripe for harvest. He saw people. And he didn't, didn't see those people who were like him. He didn't see those people who just liked him. He, didn't see, he just didn't see the religiously convinced. He saw Nicodemus. He saw Zacchaeus. He saw the woman at the well. He saw the adulteress in the dirt. He saw the rich young ruler. He even saw Pilate and Judas as someone that, that he would reach out to and offer eternal life to. He saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. Now I want you to think about it. In this Pentecost experience that we, that we read about, 120, 120 people led 3,000 to faith in the Lord. A lot of people think that they, in this day and time, that Peter gave an invitation, that they played 32 verses of Just As I Am while everybody bowed their head and closed their eyes, and they came forward. That's not what happened at all. Not what happened at all. Those 3,000 people were saved because 120 believers went to them and shared their faith with them. Telling them how to be saved. They had the passion of Jesus for lost people. Now, all of us in here have a passion of some kind. 
Well, what is it that your passion exists for? Do you have a passion to see lost people to come to know Jesus? Jesus was passionate about Jerusalem. He wept over it. He cried over it. If we're going to be a Great Commission church, it will only be because that inside this congregation exists Great Commission believers. When we make reaching people our passion, like Jesus did, then we will have touched the heart of Christ. We live in a crazy culture. If we leave it like we found it, it's going to get worse. We've got to make a difference. God's call to us as a church is to be Jesus in this community. That means rising above our differences. That means rising to the point of doing what he's called us to do. In the early 1900s, around the turn of the century, preacher came to church. He got dressed up every Sunday morning, came to church, and somewhere in the foyer there was a rope hanging there. You remember that foyer that rope was for? Ring the bell. He would ring the bell to remind all those workers that today was Sunday. He did it early enough so they could get dressed and get the uh, wagons hitched up. And the story goes that you could see people coming from all all over the community, somewhere middle of the century, people began coming. People quit coming. Lost people never stopped coming to look for answers. And the sad truth is today, symbolically, we're still standing in the building ringing the bell. I mean, it worked 100 years ago. I never was a um, Andy Griffith uh, watcher. I mean, the show was okay, but early in that series is one of the priceless programs. Following the death of, of Andy's wife, Sheriff Andy Taylor decided to invite his Aunt B to come and live with him because he felt like Opie needed a female touch. Well, if you saw that episode, Opie wasn't too thrilled about Aunt B coming. And so Andy, being the fixer that he is, he stepped in and he said, okay. And so they carried her fishing, frog catching, and even football. As you can imagine, she was no good at fishing. She didn't like the frogs. She was no good at frog catching. And she really didn't care for football. The episode goes down and it's obvious things aren't going good. So Aunt B insists that Andy take her to the bus station so she can go back home. Opie hears, he's in the bed and he hears them talking. And he, and he hears her crying, and he goes and uh, sees his dad. He said, Dad, we can't let her go. Actually, he says, Pa. Y'all remember that's what he called her? We, could, we can't let her go, Pa. She needs us. 
She can't catch frogs. She can't take the fish off the hook, and she can't throw a football. We've got to take care of her because she'll never make it on her own. And here's what I want to tell you, folks. The people who you know, who you spent a lifetime rubbing shoulders with in this community, they may not know Jesus loves me, the song, but they really may not know Jesus loves me, the truth. They may not know the song Jesus saves, but they not, may not know the truth that Jesus is the only one that can save them from a place called hell. But here's the truth. If we let them go, they'll never make it on their own.